0: Thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you and to worship you in the word. And we ask you to guide and lead as we study this section about your defining on what to do with a king. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Deuteronomy 17, starting at verse 14. When you are come into the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall possess it and shall dwell therein and, you, and shall say, I will set a king over me as all the nations that are about me. You shall in any wise... "...set him king over you, whom the Lord your God shall choose, one from among your brethren. Shall you set king over you? You shall not set a stranger over you, which is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, ye shall not henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away." Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this book of the law out of which is before the priest of the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and keep all the words of this law and the statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted above, up above his brethren and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Okay, so we're going to look at this uh, section here in Deuteronomy, and it's got a lot of interesting tidbits in it that I want to bring out. Verse 14, when you are come into the land which the Lord your God gives you, and shall possess it and shall dwell therein and shall say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations that are about me." And then he gives them the rules for this, but he says, you wanna note here that he doesn't say if you call for a king, but when you call for the king. And it's kind of an interesting thing that God already knew that the people would want a king. And the reason that he says they would want a king is that they want to be like all the other nations. And this is exactly what we see happen in 1 Samuel. And we're going to read real quick in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, starting at verse 1. And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abiah, and they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and to Ramoth, and said unto him, Behold, you are old, and your sons walk not in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. (laughs) Sounds just just what God said they would say. And the reason that people were rebelled against the judges who had been ruling from the time that they entered the promised land all the way through this time of uh, Solomon of uh, Saul being called, approximately 300 years, give or take a few uh, years of judges. And the people say, basically, we're tired of the judges. We want to be like everybody else. We don't, We don't want God basically ruling over us. And in verse 6 in, in 1 Samuel says, the, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to, our, to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord had said to Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say to you. That, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day which I brought them up out of Egypt. Even to this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so... Do they also unto you. Now therefore, hearken unto their voice, albeit yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of a king. And then he goes on to say how a king's going to take ten percent of in tax and a bunch of you know, take the best of the fields and the best of the best of the produce, and all this stuff is what he continues to go on. But he but he basically Samuel was not happy that they were making this, this request. But God had already said, when you get into the promised land, you and I, and you shall say. So God already knew what they were going to do, and we've talked a lot about this. God knows what's coming. Nothing that ever happens surprises God. And before 300 years before they plus years before they ask for ask for a king, God told them they were going to ask for a king, and told them what to do when they wanted to find this king it makes no sense to me either that he would create man knowing that man was going to sin but he did we don't know what god sees that makes us worth being redeemed and what it is maybe in heaven he'll show us i don't know i am not one who believes that god will tell us everything when we get to heaven there are many that believe that once we get to heaven we'll know everything well i don't believe that because god knows everything and we are not god and we will never be god So I don't believe that we will, I think we will forever be learning. And if God runs out of things to teach us, he'll just create more things to teach us. But so he'll never run out of things to teach us for all of eternity. I do not believe that we'll know everything when we get to heaven. Will we know a lot of things we didn't know? Probably. Will we see things from a different perspective? Absolutely. And that may reveal a lot to us that we didn't understand on this world. But I think we're gonna forever be learning. But here is God showing that he knows the future. He knows that the people are going to reject him because that's what he told Solomon, they have not rejected Samuel. They have not rejected you, they have rejected me. Now, part of the problem, of course, as we saw in, in 1 Samuel was that Samuel's sons were not righteous men. Samuel did not do a good job raising his boys to take over for him. I said they they sought after bribes and, and money, and so they were they were easily bribed. So if you had money, you could get your way, and that's not the way that justice was supposed to run. And this is why the people rejected them. They saw how evil Solomon uh, Samuel's sons were, and said, "No, we don't want any part of them. They're they're not like you." And, and even in the days that Solomon uh, Samuel was getting older, he was having trouble with it, and his sons were doing all kinds of things that were not right. So we see God saying, I know this is coming, and when it comes, and I just, I just bring that up, it's not if it comes, but when it comes, <laughs> and, and we read just what they said, you know, I will set a king over them like as to all the nations around about me is what they wanted, and that's what they told Samuel they wanted. They wanted to be like all the other nations. Oftentimes, we as Christians have to be very careful. God has set us to be separate from this world. A peculiar people, a very uh, his treasured possession, and yet, how many times do we want to be like the world? You know, we think like the world, we act like the world, and we there's really sometimes there's no difference at all amongst Christians in the world. And God's saying, I want you to be different. We are to be His children, His people. That means when it comes to things like divorce, it's not, it's not something that should be thought of amongst Christians, but yet we find that the divorce rate amongst Christians is just as high as it is in the world, or higher, depending on... I heard an actual interesting, interesting uh, comment from one pastor. He goes, you have to have people that get married in the first place before you can have a divorce. <laughs> and Christians are the ones that are getting married more often than not. It makes sense that there would be a larger percentage of Christians getting divorced because there's a larger percentage of Christians actually getting married in the world because a lot of people are living together and they're not even married. And the sad thing is there's lots of people in the churches that are living together that aren't married and and nobody really knows it unless you get to know the individuals and then they let that one little thing slip out that hey no we're not married we're just (laughs) living together and Living as husband and wife, everybody thinks they're husband and wife, and it's, it's much better for the appearance of evil from the opposite sex living in you, and that would be nothing a nothing Christian wants to have anything to do with, because it has too much in there, and most of the people, when you really get down to it, are not living in a platonic relationship. But it's, but it's easier not to live in that, even the appearance of evil. And that's what we're told, don't have the appearance of evil. The church that I've trained to be a pastor in, if you were a pastor, you you were not to be in a car with another woman that wasn't your wife, period. Unless Unless you were single, but because of the appearance of evil. Appearance is a really big deal because people judge by what they think they see. And whether it's right or wrong, it is what it is. People make these decisions, they make these thoughts, they make these judgments. And once you've done something that makes people think that you've done something wrong, doesn't matter whether you've done it or not, that's that's in their mind, you have been, been soiled. So you're best off keeping yourself above reproach. And it's very important to have, have that position of being above reproach, you know, that it's not even somebody can look at you and say, what were they doing? And this is the old joke of the pastor, parks his car next to a bar and goes across the street to the store, but everybody sees his car in front of the, bar, and it's like, well, why is the pastor in the bar? Well, he's not in the bar, (laughs) but they immediately judge him because of where he parked his car. It's a two-way street. You shouldn't be judging them what you think you saw, but by the same token, if you're going to be a godly person, you have to really hold yourself to a higher standard that is not worthy of being judged. I don't think we even think about that. It depends on where you're at. I have grown up in the work world when I first started working with an idea that you are a professional you have to carry yourself above reproach at all activities store that I worked for I could not even show up in at the store unless I was wearing at least professional clothes slacks and a dress shirt at the bare minimum was what I could walk into that store with because you never knew if you were going to end up having to work and just the fact that people recognized you as the as the manager and if you came in and all grungy and everything. It had that opinion. So all these things have pressed into me. You hold yourself above at all times. Watch your tongue. You watch what you say. You watch how you act. And it was drilled into my head. So I've used that in every aspect of my life to try to stay above reproach. Is it 100%? Absolutely not. Nobody's going to be 100% above, above reproach in everything that they do. But if you have it in the forefront of your mind and you're thinking about it, you can avoid a lot of stupid things <laughs> that would normally have been stepped into if you weren't thinking about it. And again, it's just keeping aware, trying to stand, stand above. Again, the idea of we keep ourselves above that reproach, we keep ourselves above. When I was working in the restaurants, I, did, I usually did not carry money when I went into the store because I didn't want to have any accusation that I had taken anything from the, the store. So very, very rare did I ever carry any kind of cash on me so we have all of that but anyway verse 15 you shall in any way set him king over you whom the Lord your God shall choose one from among your brethren shall be you set over King you shall not set a stranger over you which is not your brother so here God is given the rules you're going to be choosing the one that I choose in other words you're gonna take and this is exactly what they did in Samuel they went to Samuel and said we need, we want a king. We don't want your children. We don't want your children ruling over us. They're not like you. We want a king like all the others. Samuel went to God and said, "God, who should I choose?" And then we know the story that he goes out and he anoints Saul as as the king. And Saul is a Benjamite. He's one of the, one of the one of the twelve tribes. And Saul starts out as a decent king, but ends up going crazy, basically. <laughs> And David ends up taking over after Saul. So, but God says, it'll be the person that I choose that will be your king. Samuel was the last judge. And before the king came into Israel, they were uh, ruled by judges as they were needed. And this is what the whole book of Judges is all about. This people would go into sin, they'd, they'd get conquered, God would raise up a leader. That leader would deliver them and rule for the rest of their lives, occasionally a couple of them. Their children would rule thereafter, and then Israel would start going back downhill. They'd get conquered, and, and uh, then a judge would be raised up. So they didn't have kings. They didn't have a royal family. They didn't have elections. God would just raise up leaders as they needed. And the closest thing they had to a constant ruler in Israel before the king was the priests and the priests were the religious clan. But obviously they didn't do a good job teaching the people to stay, stay following God because it kept, kept going that they would do what they wanted to do and what was right in their own eyes and, they would, and they'd be conquered. And after a long line of judges coming and going that we'll eventually get to and we get to the book of Judges, Samuel rises up as the last judge. And he's the one that gets rejected. You know, he's the one that the people finally just say, "Hey, we've had enough of this. Basically, we've had 300 plus years of judges. We want to have a king. We're tired of this. You know, ebb and flow, and we want to be like everybody else and have a king." And too many times we want to do this, you know, be like everybody else type business instead of following God in the direction that He wants. So He says, "I will choose your leader, and it won't be a stranger. It won't be a foreigner." And that was a very clear thing that God said. It'll be somebody from Israel. Now, why they'd want to choose a foreigner, I have no idea, but God obviously knew that what he wanted to prove to them was that your leader has to be from within you. So that has an ap- application also to churches. Churches should have pastors rise up from Christian background. And it's kind of interesting to, I've seen churches that try to grab ch- pastors that aren't Christians, and I don't understand why they would even think of doing something like that. No, the judges were righteous oh people. They were righteous, righteous people. Usually their kids didn't follow them. Uh, no, we read, the re- we read through the judges. They were very righteous people. They would just come up out of you know, somebody like Gideon, who's a nobody that God raised up from the, being a fraidy cat hiding in the, in the vat, threshing his, his uh, wheat to lead the people, lead the people into battle. Uh, you've got Deborah who's raised up as a judge and should have been Barak, but Barak you know, basically decided not to, so Deborah was raised up and she... God knew, though, that they would would be wanting a king because he understands where people are. God, God knows what we're going to do. He knows how, why we're going to do it. He knows when we're going to do it. and nothing, And this is something we keep saying. Nothing surprises God. He knows the beginning from the end. He's outside of time. He knows exactly, when God gives a prophecy, it's not even a prophecy for him, it's just he's looked down, he said, this is what's going to happen, and bang, it, he, he tells him it's going to happen. No, the judges are not related one to another, other than being Israelites. No, it's not that they were related, it's just, in this case, Samuel was trying to bring his kids in, and other, other judges tried to put their kids in, but it, it never it never worked. Verse 16, he shall not multiply horses to himself or, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to that end that he should multiply horses for as much as the Lord has said to him, you shall henceforth return no more that way. This idea of multiplying horses sounds kind of funny to us, you know, what's the big deal with having horses? The horse in that day was necessary for the Calvary and for the chariots. In our day and age, we would say something along the lines of, "You would not multiply tanks and planes unto yourself. Your trust was not to be put into your military power. In other words, he says, when you get a king, he's not just to go so powerful that he trusts in the military and not God. God was still to be the one that delivers them. The primary source of horses at that particular day and age was Egypt." But it also, we know that Egypt, and we've talked about this before, Egypt represents the world and the flesh. Okay, so he says you're not to go back to Egypt. Just as he tells us as Christians, we're not to go back to the world. Once we're saved, we are not supposed to retreat back and fall back into what we used to do. And he kept saying this to the children of Israel. You don't go back to Egypt. You don't go back to Egypt. Now he made it very easy for them not to go back to Egypt because he took them through the Red Sea, wiped out the Egyptians, so that they couldn't just turn around and go back to Egypt. To get back to Egypt, they had to go all the way back up to the north around the Red Sea and back around again and take a long trip to get back into Egypt. So God was very wise in what he did. He knew the people's desire would be to go back to egypt and well the holy spirit is the only thing that will keep us from going and and our desires and our choices but the whole idea for god is that he wants us to stay away from the world he wants us to be the new creation in uh, corinthians 5:17, you know we are a new creation in christ we are crucified in christ we are a brand new peculiar treasure of god you know so he does not want us to return back into the world that we came from. And this is a place where when you see this happening, you wonder, you know, number one, is this person actually a Christian? And it is possible to still be a Christian and backslide. You should be convicted and work in your way to get back out of it. If you can, get back, if you can backslide and not have conviction, you need to kind of look and say, am I one of his children? But when you're being convicted, you're going to be wanting to stay out of. And this is... Through the scripture, he keeps wanting people to repent and move on, repent and move on, repent and move on. Now we see the cycle is that people repent, walk with God for a while, and then fall back into sin. And it's over and over and over again that this happens. And we do this in our own life so often. We repent, we we walk with God, and then we fall right back into the sin. We, we, We repent, we walk with God, and we fall right back into the sin. A lot of times what happens is when we start living in the victory over an area, we forget to keep a guard on it and then we fall flat on our face because somehow we think it's us doing it and not God doing it. And that's the important thing. And if it's us doing it in our own strength, God's not gonna let it, let it work because our flesh can't stand before the Lord. He's gonna make sure that we fail and that he ends up having to crucify that flesh. And this is something that's important for us to understand. God does the work. And I keep saying this over and over again. God does the work. I don't sit there and struggle and fight to, to get past a sin. I go, God, I need your help. I repent. I've done wrong. I understand that it's me doing it, but I need your strength to get, get through this, and I need you to crucify this. Otherwise, it's us with a whip in the chair in the lion's den trying to tame the lions. And But the most important thing is you never turn your back on the lion because it is still wild no longer, no matter how long you've had it, it's still a lion who will take and attack you, given the chance. And too often, we as Christians sit there with our whip in our chair trying to tame our flesh that wants to do evil, and as soon as we turn our back on it to take the next part of our full lifestyle, this one rears its ugly head and, and, and attacks. This is why it has to be God coming in and he says, you are crucified. We are crucified with Christ. He doesn't want our flesh tamed. He doesn't want it under control. He wants it killed. And he's the one that will, will do the killing of it. All we need to do is let him go, put us through the painful process of killing those sins. But that's the good news is that he does the changing. If you look back over your life, how many times have you just realized all of a sudden that you no longer do something and it wasn't because you were trying hard not to do it. It's because God took the desire away. And I've had this happen to me over the years. God says, are you ready to give up these? And for the long time, I'll say, no, I'm not ready to give that up. No, I'm not ready to give that up. I know I need to get rid of it, but I'm not ready to. Then I say yes, and the next thing I know, it's gone. And it's not through struggling and striving. It's just God removes it. And this is the way that he wants to do it. He's going to crucify it. He's going to make the changing. He's not looking for flesh that is disciplined or flesh that is under control. He's looking for dead flesh. He says, you know, you're not to go back to Egypt. You're not to go, you're not to look to your own strength for your deliverance. But God is saying here, do not depend on your own strength. And this is what horses represent again. And they, they represent the mighty power of that day. They, they were the fastest, fastest uh, attack, attack vehicle. They, they attached them to the chariots, and chariots were, feared, were the feared uh, weapon of the day. He's going, you're not going to look at your own power. Then he goes and he says something very interesting. Neither shall he multiply wives unto him that his heart turn not away, neither shall he greatly multiply unto himself silver and gold. So we look at this one and we think Saul apparently didn't give too many wives. David, he had just a few wives. Solomon, according to 1 Kings 11, uh, he had, between his wives and concubines, he had a thousand women at his disposal. That's just slightly multiplying wives. David multiplied wives. Solomon really multiplied wives. And most of the kings that we read about had multiple wives. And it says here in verse 17 that multiply not wives that turn his heart not away. First Kings chapter 11, start at one. But Solomon loved many strange women and gathered together, uh, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of Moabites and Amorites and Edomites and Zidonites and the Hittites, And those ones, if you recognize those names, those are idol-worshiping nations. Of all the nations concerning which the Lord said to the children of Israel, ye shall not go to them, neither shall you go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord, as, his, as was the heart of David." So we see here it happened just as God said it would. He had many wives, and they turned his heart away. The picture you have probably had with this is Solomon builds the temple of God. Beautiful temple, nothing, nothing like it in all of history from every, every report about it. But he marries all these foreign women who, don't have, who aren't worshiping the God of heaven. And you can almost picture he goes in and you hear, oh, Solomon, dear, you know, you've got your temple to the God, but I have no place to worship my God. Can you can you build me someplace to build, you know, to go worship? And it says that's exactly what he did. He built them temples. So then, you know, after he's built them temples, he's, you know, he's just trying to appease the woman. And then the next thing is, well, Solomon, you've never gone to my temple with me. Says that he loved these women. So he's going and he ends up in their temple and and slowly over time turns away. His heart from God. Most of them were political marriages, but he says but it says here that he loved them. Unto these in love is what it says in here. So he had a soft Solomon had a very soft spot in his in his life for women. That, having said that, that is a picture of what ends up happening. Our children usually take the worst of our traits and go deeper into those into those bad traits than we would ever have thought of doing. And David had a problem with women. He kept he he gathered a whole bunch of women, you know, not near as much as his son. But his son had that and multiplied by many. And his son is going to have the same problem, but not not quite as bad. But he's going to have multiple wives. So we see this over and over again that when and we see this also in families when when each generation can get progressively worse. Than, you know, you have an alcoholic who just who is a functional alcoholic, and then they have kids who are barely functioning, and then they have kids who just can't handle it at all, and it keeps rolling into a worsening site. Now it can happen the other way around where people raise their kids right and they're godly, and we've seen whole families that have had pastors and missionaries and, and righteous people in their line because they've set the right tone uh, on the beginning. But well, you need to understand God, and this is why God told the children, the, the fathers, train your children in righteousness. And he put it on the men. Train up your children. Help them grow. Help them know what's right. And part of training means that you have to live the life that you're teaching. And I've worked with kids long enough, and it's amazing what kids will tell tell their Sunday school teachers, you know, because it is, I know more about many of the pastors and some of the churches than I that I have been uh, a Sunday school teacher and then I'd ever want to know about the pastors because the kids would tell you about how dad doesn't do this or does this or doesn't. And it's like, uh, no, let's not go there. We don't want to, we don't need to know that. Kids are looking for a righteous standard that is real. Children are looking for this. They want to, they really want to believe that God is real and that he is righteous, but when they see their parents not reading their bible not praying not living a godly life and then pretending to in church the kids decide well it's not real it's not worth following and then they go to try to find something else and some of us have been in that place where we may have seen that in our in our families but god never approves of polygamy anyway it it happens and it and he did he made rules to protect protect, but it was not what he approved. He always wanted one man, one woman, and that's what it says in Genesis, and that's what Jesus says. The plan was always monogamous for, for life. It was, never, it was never the idea that it was supposed to be multiple. Shoulders. They see their father drinking, and they're going to think it's okay to drink. They see them gambling, it's okay to gamble. They see okay. them smoke, it's okay to smoke. No matter what you say you want them doing, if you're doing something other than what you're telling them, they're going to say, well, it's okay for you. And, and usually they will do it worse than, than, than what they saw. This was the whole thing. God says, train up, train up, help them grow. And then he says, neither shall you multiply to himself silver and gold. And again, we see David and Solomon both piling up. What does it say in, in, the, in 1 Kings? That silver was as, was as valuable as dust in Solomon's day because there was so much silver, which means it was worthless. And that's a lot of wealth. Again, the purpose of this is not that the wealth was wrong, but that they, put, they would end up putting their trust in their wealth. They would put their trust in their military and, and their prote- that they could protect everybody and themselves. They put their trust in their wealth that they could buy whatever they needed. They had the women that they would, would lead them astray because they wanted to please them, please them when they, on it. So he's saying, don't do these things. And in verse 18, he starts on a positive side. And it shall be when you sit on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priest. The king was to take the law and write out his own copy personally. Part of this was for a twofold thing because if anybody's ever studied on how to study, if you, what we hear we lose, I think it's 80% of, or 90% of, it's a huge number of what you hear. What you see, you remember a little bit more, but what you write, you remember much. And if you really want to remember it, you teach it. And that's really what it comes down to. If you want to really learn something, you teach. and you, Because that makes you study, it makes you learn how to apply it. And this is something that's very important if, you know, to, to learn, to teach this, when people, are to train up their children. How do you train up your children? You have to learn it yourself. You have to live it yourself so that you can teach your children. And by teaching them, you learn more. I have learned more when I teach than any other way of trying to learn. And I can learn by studying and all of that, but by teaching, you really do learn if you're going to be a good teacher. Um, there's people who try to wing it, you know, just present it, but if you're only going to be a good teacher, you learn. And they were to write out the book of the law. Now, having said that, I don't believe that the scripture says anywhere where one, any of the kings ever followed this commandment of writing their own copy of the law. Most of the time, a good king would come along and they would find a copy of the law. You got Josiah. He has the temple cleaned out. And it takes them months to clean out the temple because it had become a junkyard. And what did they find when they were cleaning it out? a copy of the law. And when it was read before him, he tore his garments and went into mourning because of all the rules that they had broken. And even before that, he was considered a good king. So we see they didn't do this, but they were supposed to. And then it goes into why should they do it. Verse 19. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it therein all the days of his life. So he was supposed to read his own copy of the book of the law. And remember, we've talked about the value of the bible it is not too long ago that people did not own bibles even in our country it was something that was our founding fathers did early on in the first continental congress they actually printed bibles and gave them to the citizens of the country now imagine us our government doing that in this day and age printing a bible and giving it to every citizen of the united states it would just freak everybody out. But yet the first congr- Congress did that. They printed Bibles and issued them to the, to, the, to the people. Why? Because they knew that it was God's laws and God's rules and his morality that would keep this country pure. But uh, he says they're to read this book. Before the Gutenberg press, every Bible was handwritten. And it took year and a half, two years to write a copy of the Bible. You know, think about how expensive that is. <laughs> Most churches did not have a Bible in them before the Gutenberg press started producing Bibles because it was just too expensive to have a Bible in every church. Now some of your big churches would have it because they were the the key, but your little small town churches didn't didn't have bibles even even in recent years, people did not have Bibles, and it's kind of an interesting thing that God says, The leader has to have his own Bible and he needs to read it all the days of his life. He was always to be reading the scriptures. And reason was that he may learn to fear the Lord and keep the words of the law and his statutes to do them. God wants us reading his words so that we will learn to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord comes through the knowledge of who God is and the knowledge of His rules, because if we don't know what He wants, then we don't know how to live. And this is very important for us to understand. This is one of the reasons I keep stressing to everybody, we need to be reading the Bible every day, because it's always new, it's always fresh. And I've read through the scriptures many times, and yet I find something new in it. Every time I open up the Word, I find something new. I find something new when I study it to teach. Even if it's something that I teach a lot, I still find something new to study. I was reading today and I read in a section where it told, me, it told us exactly how long it was between the Exodus and the starting of the temple of God. It's a new piece of information for me to put on my little list of, list of information on the, on the dates and calendars and, and, and life because now once I have that, I can back up back up a little bit and and fill in some things that I never could fill in. So it was a very great, exciting thing. It's been there a hundred times. You have read through it so many times. And all of a sudden, I see this little piece of information say, wow, I needed that. And God has all these things. It's amazing. And I've I've joked many times. I've said, you know, and I've even said it out loud to God, you know, as a joke. You know, God, when did you put that verse in the Bible? I've never seen it before. I know it's been in there, and I know it's always been in there. But there's these times when God just shows us something, and it jumps off the page at us and says, pay attention to this today. And the good news is, when you're reading your scriptures, especially if you read them in the morning, almost every time you do this, what you needed for that day's strength and encouragement was what you read on that, on that morning. Even if you're following a, a set game plan, a same, same set order that you're reading your scriptures in, you read it and those are just what you need for that day. Many times I'll be listening to the, one of the pastors on the way to work and they'll say something. Now I know that they preach this message sometimes as much as 20 years ago. But it's exactly what I needed to hear for the for the things that I was going through that day. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to me how God's word and his teaching works that way. That whatever you need for that moment is what you hear and what you're taught within a day or two, usually within the same day, within a day or two of when you need it. It's very amazing. It's wonderful the way God works. And yet, it's also scary sometimes, especially when your toes are being stepped on and you say, God, I don't want to hear this message as he's trying to tell you to change something in your life. And I have been there many times when I was sitting in the, pool, sitting in the pulpits, uh, sitting in the pews and listening to a pastor telling me exactly what I didn't want to hear because I knew I needed to change that part of my life and they're, and they're sitting there telling me to change. And they're not talking to me. I know they're not talking to me because they're just preaching God's word. And I am absolutely sure there's times that I have done the same thing, where I'm preaching and it's exactly what the people don't want to hear, even though they know they need to hear it, because that's just the way God works. But he says they're to learn the fear of the Lord by reading His Word daily. The Bible has been the primary mover of literacy in in nations. The Jews had almost 100% literacy in their families, at least in Hebrew. Why? Because they wanted them reading the Bible. In the early part of our country, we had very close to 100% literacy. Why? Because we wanted people to be able to read the scriptures. The countries that have not had the purpose of reading the scriptures struggled with literacy. As we have gotten away from the purpose of getting into the Word of God, our literacy rate is dropping like a rock because there is no purpose in teaching them to read. Most governments do not want an educated populace because an educated populace that can read thinks. Mm-hmm. And our government today doesn't want an educated populace that thinks. It wants a populace that's educated just enough to get by but not to be able to think. And if you have ever tried to read some of the stuff from the 1800s, 1700s, 1400s, that stuff is hard to read. They write at a very high Literacy level rate, and it's sometimes very hard to read. We often struggle to try to read some of those things in our day. Even our educated people can't read much of what was written to the average person in the 1600s. Uh, the Federalist Papers are very hard stuff to read, and they were written to the farmers of the of the day that were educated and could read. And if you've ever I don't know if anybody's ever seen it, but there, there was an entrance exam in the, 18, uh, the 16 and 1700s. Into high school, you had to take this exam to go to enter high school because high school was advanced education one, one step lower than university, but not everybody went to high school. If you've ever tried to take that exam, you'd be shocked. I'd already graduated college the first time I took the exam, and I found it to be a very, very tough uh, test and that was just to get into high school. That wasn't even to get into college. We used to have people that were educated and thought and could, could comprehend things. And, and in our world, they're not looking for that. And God's saying, I want you to read. I want you to know. I want you to be able to think. I want you to see and fear me. And this is what reading God's word does, is it brings a fear of God. This is what God wants me to do. This is what I'm doing. I've got, I've got a gap between the two. I better straighten out. This is what God does if you don't fill that gap and you don't repent. He judges. He brings judgment. He punishes. And this is what he's telling the kings. They are to get into the word so they will fear God. And by fearing God, they will treat man properly. And this is what ends up happening. The more we fear God, the more we're going to treat our fellow man with great respect. Because number one, we're going to know that he's made in God's image that they are weak, that they need grace, they need mercy, then they need to be loved. And if we're just looking at what God is doing with us, then we apply it to other people. Now there's a problem if we look at what God's doing to us and we don't apply it to other people. It's it's a disconnect in where we're supposed to be. And this is why Christians are supposed to be very loving to other people. The world should know that they are loved. And Christians have this mentality and the stain that you've all heard at some point in your Christian walk, you hate the sin, but love the person. Now, that is very hard to do, especially if we're thinking like the world. Because the world, you are what you do. If you steal, you are a thief. If you lie, you are a liar. If you are an adult, uh, commit adultery, you are an adulterer, and that's who you are, and there's no distinction between it. If you drink to excess, you're a drunk, and there's no... Yeah. But God says... There's the sin that the people do and that they can be separated from their sin through his, his power. And we need to love people. Not accept their sin, not say it's okay, your sin is okay, but you are loved. You will, we want to help that person. We want to draw, draw them up out of the miry sinful pit they're in. Verse 20 says, That his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and they he turn not aside from the commandments to the right or to the left. So God says, I want his heart to be humble. This is what God says about true leadership leadership serves. And we've seen this in many times if you've been around long and if you've seen pastors who are servants. And then when they're servants, people want to help that pastor out and do everything they can. And there's also pastors out there that think that I've got this title. I, you know, bow down and kiss my feet and give me the, give me all these titles. And, you know, uh, those are the ones that come in and you know they've got their doctorate. You will call me doctor. <laughs> you know, uh, I would never want. If I had a doctorate, I wouldn't even want that title. I would want. I, I really cherish the title pastor. Because that is a servant's position. That is a one who teaches, and that, that's a, to me one of great respect. But even then when people say, well, what should I call you? I go, call me whatever you want. It's, you know, whatever you think is is proper is not is not a problem to me. Because I've had people go, you're gonna go, you're gonna call me. You're going to call me pastor. You're going to call me minister, reverend, uh, whatever it might. <laughs> I, hope I, I would never stay in a church where he said, my Lord. Uh, <laughs> that would not be one I would stay at. But, uh, but, but that is the key to this whole thing, though, is he's saying to, the, to them they're not to be lifted up. They were, they were to understand that they were the servants to the people. They were the caretaker of their people and the ones that lifted up and that they weren't to turn from God's commandment to the left or to the right. And then it says, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. When we obey God, there's a blessing involved. It could be as simple as without the stress and worry that our body stays healthy. It's amazing how much disease and sickness is because of stress. Uh, They're finding more and more linkage between, between stress and the body being sick. And God is saying, if you just obey me, you lean on him, you lose that stress. And he says it prolongs days. And of course, by not doing wrong things, you prolong your days anyway. Somebody who's not drinking and getting drunk all the time ends up not destroying their body, not, not using drugs and alcohol doesn't destroy their body. Um, going out and committing adultery and fornication and sleeping with everybody, bringing in sins and diseases into your life. There's a great benefit just in being obedient to God. Somebody who doesn't overindulge in their food doesn't get fat and, and, and end up destroying their body by that way. There are so many ways we destroy our bodies by being disobedient to God beyond just stress. And God says, if you just obey me, it's prolonged life. We obey our parents, and it says that your days may be long on this earth. Just the obedience there. God says, these kings, I want them to prolong their life by being obedient. And all of this is something that we can take into our own lives. It's not just the kings. We need to read our Bible daily. We need to be obedient. We need to not turn turn from the, to the left and the right to prolong our days. We need to be able to fear the Lord and stay humble and not lift ourselves up above people. Many times people start following God and they get, get self-righteous and proud. And, you know, well, if you were just more like me, you wouldn't have all these problems in your life. Instead of reaching out and helping lift them up. And this is what true love does. This is what Jesus did in his entire time that he walked on this world. He reached out to the poor and the needy and he lifted them up. He healed people. He ministered to people. He gave self-sacrificing love to all the people that he met. And he just lifted them up. And this is somebody that could uh, uh, rightly have been self-righteous. Saying, uh, now if you really want to do good, you need to be just like me, which is what we're already been told to do, be like God. He could have said, you need to be like me. But he didn't. He lifted them up. He talked to them. He took Thomas, who wasn't in the upper room the first time he showed up, and said, here I am. Here's my my wounds. Touch them. Because that's what Thomas said he needed. He went out to Peter after Peter had rejected him and and had gone back to fishing. And he says, you know, feed my sheep on three different occasions, (laughs) three times in a row. But he says, feed my sheep. I called you to be a fisherman. of men. I haven't released you from that, Peter. Get back, get back to doing what I have told you to do, not what you want to be doing. So often God comes into our life and says, you're not doing what I have told you to do. Get back on the right path. Because it's easy for us to go back to what we know. And it's always going to be tough to follow God. The road to following God is never easy. Jesus said, they hated me, they will hate you. And he says, I didn't come to get to, I came to bring a sword into your life. And it means there's going to be pain. There's going to be struggles. The good news is God is in control. And he has a reason for them. And the struggles are always there to help us grow. Now, we like to reject the the struggles. We like to fight against the struggles. And that makes it worse. (laughs) The more we fight against them, the more the more pain we feel from it. But when we just relax and say, God, you've got a reason. I'm going to, to, I want to learn. I want to grow. And let him carry the burden. Because he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He wants to carry our weight and let us carry his weight, which is light. And the more we learn to trust him, the easier the walk gets. Even in the midst of all the pain and trials and, and suffering, and I've said over and over, there's many times when I've looked back over things that have happened over months of time and I look back and go,ing wow, where, where'd all those problems and troubles go, come from? Because I was walking with my eyes on God and I never noticed them. I wish I had more of those than I do because I, I am just like everybody else. I, I get the little puff of wind that knocks me over because I'm not on guard. I'm not focused on on Jesus. I'm not bearing his burden and trying to bury, bear my own. But those times when I have walked through the greatest trials and struggles is when I've looked back and said, God, you're the one. Well, look what you've just done. You have protected, you have carried, and I never even knew how bad it was. And that is where the world looks at us and says, there's something different about you. You went through all that trials and tribulation and didn't get affected. Why? Because God is the one bearing it, not me. And let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your word. We ask, Lord, that you help us always to walk in your your word. Help us to get to follow you in a greater and greater way, Lord, that you are the one that helps us through all problems. We just thank you in your son's name. Amen.